you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Genesis chapter 12. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, will be this morning in verses 10 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but they will let you live. Verse 13, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dwelt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray once more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word now, in these moments to consider what it is you would reveal to us through the Scriptures pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts. We pray that we would be ready listeners. We pray that truth would have its effect on our lives. We pray particularly as we consider this episode in the life of our father Abraham, that you would give us eyes to see the seriousness of sin and the greatness of grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'd like to begin by briefly Uh, reviewing what we've seen so far in the first two messages in this series on the life of Abraham, just to remind you where we've been and where we're going. We've been introduced to Abram and to Sarai, his wife, in Genesis chapter 11. There we have the record of Terah and his descendants. Terah is Abram's father, and we're told that Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren, that is, she's not able naturally to have children. In Genesis 12, the first verses of Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram and tells him to leave his father's house, his kindred, and his country, and to go into the land that the Lord would show him. Now, it's clear from the opening verses of Genesis 12 that the foundation of the relationship that God is forming with Abram will be based entirely upon grace and upon God's promise. God gives to Abraham three promises in verses 1 through 3, and we looked at these promises last week. He promises to Abram land, that is the land of Canaan. He promises to Abram offspring or seed, descendants, particularly the son Isaac, but multiple descendants that will extend from his line. And then he also promises that through 
Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And last week, I talked about what those promises might have meant to Abram when they were originally given to him in Genesis 12. But we spent most of the time last week considering how the New Testament reflects on these promises, and therefore how we're to reflect on those promises in the New Covenant. And we'll come back to those ideas again and again throughout this series, the basic idea is that all these promises are enlarged under the New Covenant and find their fulfillment and significance in Christ and in those united to Him. Well, how does Abram respond in Genesis 12? And after he's called by God, how does he respond? He responds with a remarkable expression of faith. Abram doesn't quarrel with the Lord. He doesn't make excuses. He responds and does just as the Lord had told him. In fact, in Hebrews 11, verse 8, a New Testament passage that reflects on this very event, we read this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So we should see in the call that's given to Abram, and Abram's subsequent obedience, it's a wonderful expression of Abram's faith in God, and in God to deliver on the promises that he had made to Abram. Well, now, in our passage this morning in Genesis 12, 10 through 20, we have the first major episode of Abram's sojourn, of his story after God establishes a relationship with him in the first half of Genesis 12. In these verses, we have Abram's first recorded words, and here also we have the first recorded instance of Abram failing. Chapter 12, of course, opens with a grand expression of Abram's faith in the promises of God. However, here in the second half of the chapter, we come to realize that Abram's life is not going to be an unbroken chain of faith-filled victories. Rather, his is a life that will also know acute failure and instances of sin, and in this case, very great failure in the latter half of Genesis 12. The text, Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, is easily divided into three sections, what I'm calling this morning three scenes. So I have three points this morning, three headings, I'm calling them three scenes in this particular narrative. First, we have scene one, what I'm calling Abram's faithless scheme, recorded in verses 10 through 13. Then we'll consider scene two, Sarai taken, Abram enriched, verses 14 through 16. And then point number three, scene number three, God intervenes on Abram and Sarai's behalf, verses 17 through 20. So consider with me first, scene number one, Abram's faithless scheme. Look again at verses 10 through 13. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So what do we have here? There's a famine in the land, and so Abram does what many would do in those days. He goes down to the more fertile land of Egypt that was rich in water and other natural resources. Of course, as we've noted already, Abram, being a sojourner, being a nomad, was uniquely vulnerable in those days. He was a man without a country, a man without law enforcement and without courts, he was particularly vulnerable to the attacks of others. Sojourners, nomads, refugees could easily 
be taken advantage of with impunity. Abram knows this and is afraid, and he's about to cross the border into Egypt. And notice the grounds for his fear. He recognizes that he has an unusually beautiful wife, and that she will easily become prey to the Egyptians who will desire her and perhaps want her as their own wife. He's seeing this unfold. My wife is beautiful, and he could tell the Egyptians are going to want her. They're going to desire her. He sees this unfolding. Well, well, notice Abram appears to think not at all about his wife and her safety and well-being. In fact, he hatches a scheme to make it even easier for the Egyptians to treat Sarai as prey. If he can get Sarai to agree to tell the Egyptians that she is Abram's sister, then Abram's life will be spared, and the Egyptians will take Sarai and do with her what they will. My wife's very beautiful. They're going to want to take her. If I say to them that she's my sister, and if she agrees to go along with that, it will be easier for them to take her, and I'm not going to be killed. My life is going to be spared. He says, verse 13, say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, this episode, this same basic plot, if you're familiar with the Genesis narrative, is actually repeated later on in Abram's story in Genesis 20. Almost the exact same series of events happens there in Genesis 20. There, Abram attempts to deceive Abimelech and to uh, deceive him into thinking that uh, Sarai is only his sister and not his wife. And there we read this, and you can look if you'd like or listen as I read, Genesis 20, verse 10. After the same basic plot is unfolded, we read this, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So Sarai was Abram's half-sister, and she became my wife. Verse 13 of Genesis 20 and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So apparently at some point earlier in the marriage between Abram and Sarai in Genesis 12, or maybe even in Genesis 11, before Abram leaves his father's house, Abram hatched this scheme with Sarai. He recognized that as a sojourner, he was uniquely vulnerable and that people would not hesitate to kill him in order to take his beautiful wife. And so he made Sarai promise him she'd go along with his deception and tell people that she was his sister so that they could take her while sparing Abram. Now, the keen listener has noticed that I've used the word deception several times, and you might raise the objection, but Pastor Alex, the text did say, at least in Genesis 20, that she is actually his sister albeit his half-sister, but it's, it's not totally false for Abram to claim that she's his sister. Is it really deception then for Abram to tell the Egyptians and later to tell Abimelech that she is his sister? Well, to that I would say this, uh, leaving off for a moment the egregious wickedness of pimping your wife to save your own skin, I hold that Abram is still guilty of deception because you realize the point is not that Abram wants to persuade the Egyptians that she's his half-sister. That's not what he mainly wants them to believe. The point is he wants to persuade the Egyptians that she's not his wife. 
and therein lies the deception. He thinks by telling this half-truth, he can obscure the reality that she is actually Abram's wife, and it's this very thing that he wants hidden from the Egyptians, and so he chooses a half-truth in order to deceive them and to obscure the reality that she is, in fact, his wife. And of course, you know the old saying, a half-truth presented as a whole truth is a whole lie, right? So there's no getting around Abram's duplicity in this passage, his deception. So I want us here under this first point to appreciate the multiple layers to Abram's wickedness, and there are at least three layers in verses 10 through 13. First of all, Abram essentially makes his wife pray to the Egyptians, apparently permitting her to be carried off to Pharaoh's house, and more than that, receiving gifts from Pharaoh's hand in the meantime. Look at verse 16 of chapter 12, and for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You you just have to wonder if Abram's conscience was pricked as the next shipment of livestock and goods came in from Pharaoh. You wonder if, if as he received this princely largesse from Pharaoh that flowed so bountifully from the courts of Pharaoh, you you wonder if, if perhaps he wondered, I wonder what Sarai is going through right now. And why it is that Pharaoh is being so bountiful in his gifts toward me. Uh, Secondly, the second layer to Abram's sin is, of course, his actual deception. He deliberately deceived the Egyptians. There's no getting around it. The utterly lame excuse of a reason he offers up later on to Abimelech should be rejected. Abram knew what he was doing. He was being a deceiver. He was deliberately obscuring the truth to engineer a particular outcome for himself. I don't see any way around that in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20. But there's a third layer to Abram's sin, and I think this is the worst and most aggravating dimension of Abram's wickedness and faithlessness. What did God say to Abram just seven or eight verses ago? Verse 2, what did the Lord tell Abram? I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, in light of this promise, did Abram justly, rightly, have anything to fear? Did he have a good reason to be afraid as he crossed the border into Egypt? No, of course he didn't. God had promised Abram, he had assured Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, I'm going to make your name great, and you all the families of the world will be blessed. And I feel certain that promise did not involve Abram getting strung up in Egypt and killed. The Lord had promised a future to Abram. He had no reason to be afraid, and yet nonetheless he says, they will kill me. But God had, in essence, told Abram, hadn't he? No, they will not. No one will harm you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you descendants. Those were God's revealed purposes and plans for Abram. But he had not the faith to believe them in this instance. And what is therefore so sinful and faithless about Abram's dealings in Egypt is that he reflects no confidence no faith in the promise of God. Rather than trusting God to protect him and to ensure the fulfillment 
of all the grand promises he had made to Abram, Abram instead takes matters into his own hands and tries by sinful means to engineer a future for himself. He demonstrates no confidence, no trust that God can and will actually fulfill his word. Simply put, this is an episode of monumental failure for Abram. And in the narrative we're given, I think it's significant that it comes immediately after God calls him and makes these glorious promises to him. Well, that's scene one, Abram's faithless scheme in verses 10 through 13. Consider with me now, secondly, scene number two, Sarai taken, Abram enriched. Let's look at verses 14 through 16 together. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I'm just going to note this because it stood out to me in reading the narrative several times this week. I don't think this is the main point. I don't think we should read mountains into this. But there is an interesting detail in the way this narrative unfolds. Do you notice that whenever Abram is talking about or talking to Sarai, her name is mentioned? And that when God enters the narrative in verse 17, Sarai's name is once again mentioned as God speaks on her behalf. But when it comes to the Egyptians and Sarai, her name sort of disappears from the narrative. She's just referred to as the woman. The woman was very beautiful. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Again, I might be reading into the passage, but there just seems to be a kind of depersonalizing of Sarai, a sort of objectifying of her. To them, she's just goods. She's just the woman being taken into Pharaoh's house. This was a compromise of the sacred relationship based upon knowledge that Abram had with his wife Sarai, and then indeed God had with Sarai as well. But what happens here? Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house, and apparently... Pharaoh is quite pleased with Sarai because he starts sending gifts to Abram. And these aren't like, you know, flowers or a coupon book or a box of chocolates. He's sending great riches to Abram. He's sending livestock. He's sending expensive goods. He's sending male and female servants. You almost get the sense this is like a sort of dowry of sorts. Like, thank you for your sister. Here. Let me, let me give you blessing. Let me enrich you uh, because of your sister. Now, a question you might be asking yourself, does the text indicate that Pharaoh actually took Sarai as his wife? By that, I mean, does he actually lay with Sarah? And some of the commentators certainly suggest that. Let me do so for a number of reasons. You have the language of being taken in to Pharaoh's house. Of course, you have the gifts that are bestowed on Abram that might indicate some pleasure and satisfaction with Sarah. You have the fact that when we look at the parallel account in Genesis 20 where a similar episode is repeated, that text sort of goes out of its way to highlight the fact that Abimelech never touches Sarah, uh, but rather she's innocent in his sight. Uh, and, and then you, of course, have the fact that Genesis 12, God actually sends plagues upon Pharaoh might think is a punishment for some wickedness being carried out, whereas in Genesis 20, we'll see when we get there, God doesn't send any curse upon Abimelech, rather he threatens a curse and says, if you touch her, this is what I'm going to do to you. 
course, you also have the statement in verse 19 where Pharaoh himself says in chapter 12, verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Maybe indicating that they actually had consummated a marriage relationship. Okay, personally, in light of all that evidence, though, I think that does slant towards a consummated marriage. I don't think we should make assumptions. The text doesn't emphasize that this is indeed what happened. What we know is that Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house with the intention of Pharaoh making her his wife. We know it's certainly possible that Pharaoh slept with her, but we don't know more than that, and so I don't think we should dogmatically say more than that. But what should stand out to us is the fact that Abram obviously knew this was not only a possibility but a probability, and he allowed it to take place nonetheless. And we get no indication in this passage that his conscience is troubled by the gifts that he received, even though they were gifts he gained by deception and duplicity. He just keeps receiving the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and allows himself to basically become enriched through his fraud. Well, that's the second major scene, Sarai taken, Abram enriched. Now the third and final scene, God intervenes on Abram and Sarai's behalf. Verses 17 through 20, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's interesting. If you read through this narrative, Genesis 20, verses 10 through 20, excuse me, Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, in verses 11 through 16, there's not a single reference to God. Abram makes no reference to the Lord. We're not given the Lord's thoughts on what's taking place. We have just a running narrative of Abram's wickedness and his failure, but then God intervenes in verse 17, and we read, but then the Lord. Like, He emerges into the narrative as the the protagonist. He intervenes on behalf of the one who is in danger. God acts, God takes the initiative, and God interrupts this sinful episode, and He redirects events. We read, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, again, I don't want to read too much into the text, but what had God said to Abram? What had He promised to Abram about people who bless him? God said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Moreover, He said, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. So if we lay those words, that promise from God, whoever blesses you, Abram, I'm going to bless. Whoever dishonors you, I'm going to curse. If we lay those words as a sort of interpretive grid over this passage, what do we learn? Well, well, God does not reckon Pharaoh sending the gifts of herds and servants to Abram as any indication of actual blessing, otherwise he would have blessed Pharaoh. Moreover, the Lord clearly interprets Pharaoh taking Abram's wife into his house and maybe into his bed, an indication of dishonoring Abram. And so God is here acting in fulfillment of His promise. As Pharaoh has dishonored God's servant Abram and Abram's wife Sarai, the Lord intervenes to bring about a curse upon him. 
The Lord is intervening here actually to fulfill His promise. The Lord is intervening in grace to preserve the promise that He had given to Abram rather than washing His hands of Abram and saying, all right, the bet's off, the deal's over, I see what you're really made of. Rather, God intervenes in grace and in faithfulness, and He does everything to ensure that the promise will stand. And He intervenes to care for Sarai through whom the promised seed would come. And he intervenes on Abram's behalf to make sure that his life will be spared and that he will leave the land of Egypt actually with great riches. In fact, the riches that Abram gained through his duplicity become a a help to him and actually some of his triumphs of faith later on in the book of Genesis, which we'll see in coming weeks. God is intervening to keep his promise. He is redirecting events so that the promise would stand. And now because of the Lord's intervention, Pharaoh, we read, now sees the situation for what it is. So he summons Abram and says, what is this you have done to me? He interprets Abram's deception as an aggressive act, as sin against him. What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. You see here in this passage, even a pagan man can discern that what Abram did was wrong and sinful. Pagan Pharaoh, idolatrous Pharaoh can discern that this was rotten. And how that must have stung Abram, being rightly rebuked, And being given a lesson in righteousness by an idolater, he had to have his eyes open to his sin by a pagan. Verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Verse 19, the last words are this, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Again, not the main point of the text, but I can't help but notice When was the last time Abram was told to take his wife and go? Was it not by God Himself telling him while he was still in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, take your wife, Abram, and your household, and go into the land that I will show you? He had first heard that commission, take your wife and go, from the lips of the Lord Himself. And in the context of gracious promises the Lord has made. Now after shameful failure in Egypt, he's given the commission again, this time from the lips of pagan Pharaoh, to take his wife and go. And it's as though he's being recommissioned by God from the lips of Pharaoh. How shameful. How terrible this must have been. You can only imagine what was going on internally in Abram's heart when his sin is uncovered. And he's told once again, go, go back to the land, take your wife, and go. This is without question a terrible episode in Abram's career. He starts his journey of faith by stumbling. After the glorious call and Abram's initial expression of faith in heeding the word of the Lord, now in the first major episode since the call itself, Abram fails miserably. In the time that remains, I want to share with us three implications Three lessons we can glean from 
this narrative, this sad chapter in Abram's experience. This is three lessons for us now as we reflect on what took place in Abraham's life in Genesis 20 verses 10 through, excuse me, 12 verses 10 through 20. The first implication is this. Faith and failure can coexist in the heart of a true believer. Faith and failure can coexist in the heart of a true believer. So this is just a stunningly sad episode in Abraham's life. And you know what? It's not going to be the only episode. In fact, this very same episode is going to be repeated in Genesis 20, as I've mentioned already. And there are other instances of failure we're going to see in Abram's story. We'll see Abraham and Sarah scheme together later on to try to cut corners in order to receive the blessing by having Abraham sleep with Hagar, Sarah's servant, and to have a child by her. It appears that God is in no hurry to fulfill His promise. Sarah hasn't had a baby, so they scheme together, well, why don't you take my servant? And they try to circumvent and engineer, again, a result for themselves rather than going through the means, the promised means through which God had said He would bring the blessing. And what's more, after that event, they treat Hagar spitefully. It was just a sad, sad thing this woman went through at the hands of God's servant, Abraham and Sarah. We'll see later on, Genesis 17 and Genesis 18, we'll see both Abraham and Sarah laugh in God's face at His promise that He will give them a child. Abraham, in his heart, laughs like, God, how are you going to do this? Give me a break. And then later in chapter 18, Sarah does the very same thing. Abraham's life is one stained by serious and prominent failures. And yet there's no question, there's no question at all that the Bible regards Abraham as a man of faith. Abraham is one of the good guys. Uh, he's, he's one of the heroes of the faith. For example, as Paul develops his understanding of the essence and nature of faith in Galatians 3, who is the first person he goes to? Abraham, Galatians 3 verse 9, so then those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Like if you're writing a biography on the character of Abraham, there's only one subtitle you can have biblically. It's Abraham, the man of of faith. That's just like who he is in the Bible. If I say to some of you kids, um, Abraham Lincoln, what comes to mind? You might say honesty. He's honest Abe, right? Winston Churchill, the indispensable man. Those virtues, those character traits are associated with those great men of history. You bring up Abraham in the Bible in any passage other than what we have in Genesis, he's Abraham, the man of faith, the hero of faith, the paradigm of faith, the model, the example of faith and faithfulness. In Hebrews 11, which we looked at last week, that chapter is often referred to as the hall of faith, just a running list of many of the great heroes of the faith. And Abraham in that passage receives the highest commendation for his faith and his faithfulness in trusting God and following Him in steadfast obedience. The subject of faith in the Bible is so closely linked to Abraham that his name has become almost synonymous with faith. And indeed, he's regarded as the man of faith for good reason, because this isn't the totality of his story. He didn't just fail in Egypt and fail with Hagar and fail again with Abimelech. He also triumphed by faith. 
By faith, he left Ur and his father's house. He left everything behind, kindred, country, family. He left everything to embrace the life of a sojourner. We read, by faith, he sojourned in tents, holding fast to the promise that God would yet give him a son, and after God had given him the son of promise. Later on in the Genesis narrative, Abraham's faith in God to deliver on what he said he would do led him to the point of fulfilling the Lord's command and lifting up the knife to kill the son of promise, Isaac, believing that God would be so faithful to his promise that even if the knife did descend upon Isaac and kill the son of promise, well, God would raise him from the dead. God would somehow find a way. And his story ends with that episode in great triumph by faith. Tremendous failures, heroic expressions of faith. So what should we conclude as we read this sad and somewhat disturbing episode in Genesis 12, 10 through 20? At least we should conclude this. Faith and failure can coexist in the heart of a true believer. In fact, they do exist in the heart of every true believer. Christian, this might help us make sense of ourselves. You have in your heart at the same time The forces of spirit-given faith and the forces of sinful failure at war within you. Abraham knew what that was like. His life was not an unbroken string of victories of faith. Rather, he knew egregious and sinful failure, and he also knew triumphs of faith. This goes on in the heart of every true Christian. Faith and failure can coexist at at the same time, and even the greatest of saints I mean, like the A-listers, the hall of faith, even the greatest of saints, they have their doubts. Even the greatest of saints have pronounced moral failings. It can be so faithless at times. You think of Moses, the prophet of God, servant of the Lord. He's evasive, tries to evade the calling of God. He's, He's so vacillating. He's so fickle bursts out in rage and anger. You have David, who was said to be a man after God's own heart, commits murder, takes Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, commits adultery with her and tries to cover it up. You even have the apostle Peter, the one upon whom the Lord would build his church. He denies three times that he ever knew the Lord, forsakes him, in his hour of need. Faith and failure coexist in the heart of every true believer. And I'll just say on this point, um, I'm getting a little tired of cancel culture. And, and I've been grieved to see it impacting the church in our day and age. The idea that because Martin Luther was anti-Semitic, The idea that John Calvin put a religious heretic to death in Geneva, the fact that Jonathan Edwards owned slaves, whatever the egregious wickedness is, and all those things are egregiously wicked, well, well, then we can't glean anything from those men of the faith. Don't quote them. Don't read their books. They have nothing to contribute. Okay, here's why that's wrong and so dangerous. If you want to cancel such men and such women, you have to begin canceling Abraham. You have to cancel David. You have to cancel Peter. You have to cancel many who have committed 
great wickedness, even as they believed God and struggled by faith. But there's a further concern I have if we give in to that spirit of the age. We'll start canceling each other. And that will ruin this church. We're a room full, a membership full of redeemed sinners. We've committed all kinds of terrible sins. I was talking to a friend recently this week, a brother pastor, and in his church, there was a man who recently, in a very public episode, drank too much. And this kind of thing was known among the church body. And this man was so ashamed and he was broken over his sin. And he presented this to the church. He said, look, this happened, perhaps some of you have heard of it, and I committed this great sin, and I brought reproach upon the name of Christ, and I want to repent to you. What do you do with a brother like that? Canceled. Well, we're not going to let our kids be around him. Well, we're definitely not having him in our house. You won't see me mingling with him outside the church anymore. Would we take that kind of a self-righteous spirit? Or will we realize, no, faith and failure can coexist in the same person, and though this was an egregious failure, a sinful thing, and it should be dealt with accordingly, we don't deny fellowship and communion and grace to such a brother who's fallen into sin. Abraham sold out his wife in Egypt, and yet how many of us, if Abraham walked through the door now, would not prefer to hear a sermon from him than from me? We would certainly hear from our brother Abraham. We would certainly sit at the feet of David. We would certainly welcome Peter as the honored guest to tell us the verities of the Scriptures and the things of God. If we give in to the Spirit that says your sin and your background and your past and that episode of great failure in your Christian walk becomes grounds for me to separate from you, it is the death of Christian community. And it is a betrayal of the gospel. We're all guilty, vile, and helpless sinners washed by the blood of Christ. That is our only hope in life and death. We have no other solace. We have no other hope. And we should relate to one another in the body of Christ on this basis. We're saved always and only by the grace of God. We should pray certainly that God would help us to fail less. We should fight for holiness and sanctification. We should never look at an instance like this in the life of a great man like Abraham and say, well, see, it really doesn't matter how you live. Abraham would not condone that way of thinking. We should pray that we fail less and that we have more victories by faith. But we should recognize this about ourselves and about one another. Faith and failure can coexist in the heart of a true believer. Implication number two, I just have this and one more and then we'll be done. Number two, what can we learn from Genesis 12, 10 through 20? We can learn this. Children, you really need to listen to this one, okay? I mean, everybody does, but I want the kids to hear this. God's faithfulness to his promises does not depend on our perfect faith or flawless obedience. God's faithfulness to his promises does not depend on our perfect faith or flawless obedience. If you've ever gotten that impression from me or from your parents or from your Sunday school teachers or for some friend at Christian school or public school or co-op that we think that God relates to us on the basis of our perfect obedience, I'm telling you today that's totally wrong. God's faithfulness to His promises doesn't depend on us being perfect 
and always doing the right thing and saying the right thing and always prioritizing the right thing. It doesn't depend on our perfect faith and our flawless obedience. You notice in this narrative, even as we see Abram's failure, there isn't the slightest hint, not a jot or tittle or iota, that God is stepping back one inch from His promises to bring blessing for Abram and his descendants. He's not backing away from Abram, despite this very wicked thing he perpetrated. God's not stepping one inch away from the promises and commitments he had made to Abram. In fact, the only time God appears in the narrative at all is to deliver Abram and Sarai from the mess that they had gotten themselves into. And then perhaps most surprising of all, as I said, God actually lets him leave with the herds and the servants and all of that, and they become part of the way in which God brings deliverance from Abram in later chapters. Zach is going to talk to us about that next week in chapters 13 through 14. One thing that we must appreciate in this passage, in this sinful episode in Abram's life, is that despite Abram's faithlessness, and despite his failings, God will keep His promise to Abram. God is going to do just what He has said He would do, despite the fact that Abram himself proved to be faithless. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. God is going to keep His Word to us. God will fulfill His promises to us, even when our sins and failures appear to obscure the promise. Even when our sins and failures seem so great and so large in our minds, the promise is that God will complete His Word. God will do just what He has said. And just as He was faithful in Abram's case, He will be faithful in our case. God's good purposes and plans for us to bring us salvation, to complete the work He's begun in us, to present us faultless on that great and final day, to preserve us and keep us unto the end. God's purposes and plans for you, brother and sister, are not interrupted by your failure and your sins. Sadly, so many Christians walk around like, you know, the, the thing, it's like a, a proverb for like a, a, a boy or girl who's in love, they got the flower He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. So so some Christians walk around that way in their relationship with God. I had a good day, he loves me. Oh, I had a bad day, he loves me not. I've done pretty well this week, he loves me. Oh, I said that terrible thing, he loves me not. What a terrible way to live. And it's especially terrible because it doesn't reflect at all what the Bible teaches about the love of God. The love of God perseveres through our failings. God keeps His Word despite our faithlessness. God fulfills what He said He would do in our lives and in our experience, even though we so often blow it. We are so often unfaithful to Him. God keeps His promises even in the context of our failures. Certainly, I'll certainly qualify this, say God can be grieved by our sins, and He is grieved. We're to grieve not the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, I think, verse 29. Our sins can produce terrible consequences for us in this life. Our sins can obscure our experience of communion and fellowship with God. These are terrible things that do extend from our sins, and more than that, our sins can greatly harm ourselves and other people. But nonetheless, if we are truly united to Christ by faith, 
Our sins cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and they can never undo his promises sealed in blood, the blood of his own son. Friends, God's faithfulness can outrun, listen to me, they can outrun, outlast, overrule, and override even our worst sins and failures. God's faithfulness depends not on our perfect faith or our flawless obedience. So it was in Abram's experience, and so it will be in ours. Thirdly and finally, and in closing, last implication, and we're just going to keep coming back to this in these weeks in the life of Abraham. God is the hero of every believer's story. God is the hero of every believer's story. So don't forget, there are these narratives that we'll come to where the Lord isn't mentioned much, and all we get is the circumstances that Abraham and Sarah are in, or Lot, or Hagar, whoever it is we're considering. You can forget there's a divine perspective on the passage. Well, don't forget that there's certainly a story to tell about Abraham, and he is a paradigm and a model for us in terms of what godly faith looks like. Don't lose sight of the fact that Genesis and Abraham's story is ultimately the story of what God is doing. This is the story of what God is accomplishing for the salvation of sinners. Abraham and Sarah's story is ultimately about what God is doing to bring deliverance and salvation and blessing to all the families of the world. He is the primary hero of the story. He's the primary actor in the story. God is directing events to bring about the fulfillment and fruition of His promise. God is the hero of Abraham's story. He's the hero of Sarah's story. We'll see He's the hero of Hagar's story. He's the hero of Isaac and Jacob's story. He is the hero of every believer's story. You might imagine several years on in Abraham's experience, it would be, I suppose, about 50 years on in Abraham's life. He's coming to the end of his life. He knows he's going to die. Sarah predeceased him, died before he did. You can imagine Abraham on his deathbed, and he's completed the life of faith. What would he be thinking about and talking about? I don't think Abraham would be celebrating his great faith-filled victories. I don't think he'd be rehearsing all the things that he had done in faithfulness to God. Rather, I think that Abraham would think to himself, hasn't God been good in my experience? So many times, if it were just up to me, if it all depended on my faith, how I would have failed. It made a mess of everything. He might have remembered being in Egypt in that time so sinfully and faithlessly. He offered up his wife to Pharaoh. Oh, how could I have done that? But wasn't God good? He kept his promise. He proved to be faithful. See, what would loom large in Abraham's mind would not be his triumphs of faith, and not even so much as failures, but the fact that his whole story was filled and overwhelmed by the grace and mercy and goodness and faithfulness of God. That's how he would have come to the end of his journey of faith. May it be so for all of us. When you're on your deathbed, pray for this, that God would give you eyes to see his faithfulness. Through all the twists and turns and the crooked dealings of my life and all the terrible things I did and maybe even the victories that I knew. 
I want to be talking about the faithfulness of God. That He, in my case, proved Himself merciful and gracious. That He withheld my hand from evil. That He kept my foot from falling and stumbling. That ultimately, in my case, God kept His promises. God was gracious and God was good. The life of faith doesn't end with us reciting our triumphs and our failures. It ends with us reciting the faithfulness of God. Let's pray together. Lord, so many of us in reading this narrative in our brother Abram's life can feel a sort of affinity and closeness with him. Because perhaps many here are aware of great failures, great betrayals of the Lord, great instances of, of wicked and shameful things. We thank you that you have recorded for us this instance of Abram's failure, and more than that, this episode in which the grace and mercy of God prevailed, in which you proved yourself faithful to keep your promise. Do not let your servant fall to the ruining of his faith and to the failure of his soul. But rather, Lord, you proved yourself faithful in Abraham's case, and we trust, we know, you will prove yourself faithful in ours. We pray, Father, that you would perhaps even bring Abraham's life to our minds, the life of others who sojourned by faith, who fell asleep in Jesus. And may it stir us and give us courage and hope that in our case you will be faithful just as you were faithful in theirs, that you will keep all of your promises which in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Help us, Lord, when our sins and our failings obscure our sense of the grace of God, our, our sense of the gospel that it could be for us. We pray that you would so move upon us and persuade us of the promises that we have in Christ that all those turn from their sin and believe upon him will be saved. That when iniquities prevail against us, as David said, you atone for our sins. That with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. May these promises flood our minds. And may we find assurance and help in the mercy and grace of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
righteous, omnipotent hand, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not be Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. 